This podcast is supported by JBS International Incorporated through a grant award from the Health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA, of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, HHS, with 0% finance with non-governmental sources. The contents are those of the author and do not necessarily represent the official views of, nor an endorsement, by HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government. For more information, please visit hrsa.gov. Welcome in to another episode of Rural Roads, the Arcor podcast, where we discuss the stories, individuals, and everything else within the Rural Communities Opioid Response Program. I'm your host, Tim Raybolt with JBS International. Before we get into it, just a quick reminder on some of the ways you can stay connected and informed of all the latest Arcor information, updates, resources, and more. As always, you can visit the Arcor TA portal, check out the new modules on the LMS, and keep up with the monthly newsletter and weekly roundup emails. You can also follow us on social media by liking Arcore TA News on Facebook and following Arcore TA on both Twitter and Instagram. In today's episode, we circle back with Micheline White from Mendenoma Health Alliance out in California, our featured grantee back in February. Micheline serves as the project director and catches us up on the latest with their mobile clinic, their impressive anti-stigma campaign, and a variety of their other initiatives and successes throughout the duration of their grant. Let's listen in. Thanks so much for joining, Micheline. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, yeah. And I know we had a lot of folks in town for the RSV the other week, and we just talked a bit before starting the recording about you know that jump from California and going all the way out there. Folks might have tuned in to their Ask a Grantee session, which we hosted back in February, but to catch some of the other folks up who might be listening and didn't join that, could you talk uh, maybe a little bit just about your role specifically with the organization? Yeah, um, I'm the executive director of Mendenoma Health Alliance, and our organization specifically is the lead entity in our rural health network. So I'm also the project director of all of the exciting things that we decide uh, we want to do and take on in the community. Um, so we do the community health needs assessments and and basically wrangle everybody to make sure the work gets done. Yeah, executive directors usually have their hands full quite a bit from from what it seems like. Uh, and you have a few community health workers that work for you all, right? Is that correct? We do. We have four full-time community health workers. One doubles as a peer recovery coordinator. He's been in recovery for five years now, so really happy to have him. They work in the office. They work outside of the office doing home visits, boots on the ground type of crew, really connected with the community and they have a great level of trust with the community that that we've had to build over the six years we've been in operations. Yeah. And I, I think I remember on the sometimes with Ask a Grantee sessions we just have one or two folks on, but you all came out in full force, right? Like I think you had maybe <laughs> it was it was fun to have that have everyone join. I'm I'm wondering if you could talk a bit around some of the unique factors for where you all are located, like different things you've seen over the years? Because you've been there a good bit of time, right? I think I remember seeing you on at least 15 years of work just in that specific county. Is that right? Yeah. Prior to my work with Mendenoma Health Alliance, I was working for a senior service organization, which is one of our partners in our network, Coastal Seniors. And so I think everybody on our team has been working in the community in some capacity for many years, except for a peer recovery coordinator who mm-hmm actually lives two hours away and drives to work every day. (laughs) So he's pretty amazing. Our community is very rural. I know we all are. 
but there's some things that make it a little trickier for us to do our work. We don't have a pharmacy for two hours in any direction. Law enforcement is not present in our community. Their general hub is two hours away. If an emergency happens, it's really our fire crews and our EMS agency responding even to like criminal type activity. It's not, our, our sheriff at one point told us that it's important to arm yourself with a gun because they're not going to be there for at least two hours. Oh my gosh. So fortunately we also live in a really safe community. Mm -hmm. So not a lot of, not a lot of concern there, but we don't have a hospital for two hours as well. And we have the longest transport times when it comes to EMS in the whole state of California. And so we have a lot of challenges to face public health, social services, all those places are two hours away. We have no stoplights. It's really just very rural and isolated, but it's incredibly beautiful. And so quality of air is great. There are some benefits to living here that people don't see in cities or in other rural communities. One of the things that was the most challenging when we started our work with substance use mental health was how stigmatized it was in our little tiny community because people grow up together here very tight knit and you almost have your back turned on you if you start going down the wrong road. And while it's a small community, one of our assessments we did with the ARCOR when we got the planning grant was to do a major assessment. And we discovered that approximately 12% of our community was suffering with some form of addiction. And at that point, fentanyl hadn't really hit our community, but a few years later it did. And so we started pulling the numbers and we're thinking, okay, 12% of the population looks like about 900, eight, eight to 900 people. Mm-hmm. So if we were to try to get half of those people or a quarter of those people into treatment, our system couldn't handle it. There right. was no treatment facility for two hours in any direction. And many of them take private pay. So navigating that is, was one of our top priorities. How do we navigate this system? Um, and get people successfully into recovery. One of our partners, which is an FQHC, when we started our work, very stigmatized addiction was, so people didn't want to go there. And we worked with them over the years to really break that down. There's one provider there who's wonderful, and she sees pretty much all the referrals that we send along. And so getting her trained to do more, and she was really open to do that, was the key thing in us being able to do our work. Yeah. I'm just still amazed that two hours for all those key services. Um, so as I was looking at the map real quick because I was trying to be able to picture this. So is that basically like you have to go to Santa Rosa to really like any of that stuff? Yeah, absolutely. So you can either go north to Fort Bragg and mm-hmm. there's there's a hospital with they don't have full scope of uh, care for like emergencies and things like that. So if it's a trauma related injury or a heart attack, things like that, people get taken to Santa Rosa. And there are two hospitals in Santa Rosa that we that our EMS agency uses. Um, and then there's a hospital to the east, two hours in Ukiah. And um, but same thing, their their scope of work is much more slim. And in general, people are taken to Santa Rosa. Yeah. I'm still trying to wrap my head around it with these so hospital treatment, law enforcement, pharmacy, all that two hours away. Could you talk a bit more on just like, how have you, 
not just reconciled that, but have there been strategies, you know, that you feel like you all have implemented to try and not necessarily close the gap in terms of time, two hours is two hours, but in terms of like impact to better assist or support the community, knowing that you have that kind of distance. Have there been different things that have proven to be pretty helpful or innovative or anything like that? Yeah. So we did start implementing telehealth available in our office. So that's one of the strategies. We have a partner who does primary, primarily behavioral and addiction treatment for telemedicine. So we started doing that. We also are working with public health because they do SUDT, substance use treatment for people discharging from jails. And we signed a contract with them recently for them to start delivering that service in our um, office. So one of the strategies was how do we get into a larger office space so that people can utilize our rooms for services that otherwise wouldn't be able to get here? And so the SUDT program is one of those opportunities. Hasn't started yet, but it will soon. We've also worked with uh, a variety of other like support services that provide food and diapers for children yeah. and whatnot. CPS and APS use our office as a stopping point because they don't have offices in our community. So as long as there's a place for the staff yeah. to go and use the restroom, meet clients, things like that, it allows services to be expanded. And that was one of the major turning points for us in being able to get additional resources. Got it. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, I wanted to shift a bit to good segue into some of the specific programs that you all had talked about back in February, wrote about in your featured grantee write-up. Two of them that I recall are the peer recovery program and the school-based prevention program. Could you say a little bit more about those for folks tuning in? Yeah, absolutely. So what's really cool is that the school-based prevention program, we started doing that in 2018. And what we do is we go in with some evidence-based curriculum, usually centered around opiates, and and we'll pick one or two other substances to go over. Mm-hmm. But what we really want to drive home for the children and the teenagers, the youth, are that if you take a pill, you may not know what's in it. And we know you're going to go to parties. We know you're going to have real-life experiences. So here's what to do in those situations and really give them guidance provide Narcan. What we do with the students is we give them surveys to learn really where they're at with their exposure to substances and what's available even in their own homes. Do they know if there's um, prescription drugs in there? If they do, they do their parents talk to them about safety? And if they have ever taken medication that's not prescribed to them and things like that. And that really helps set us up for the following year. But what it also does is it allows them to, the community health workers, to take a look at where we need to strengthen our curriculum. And we've been doing that for since 2018. And one of the things we started using was the first harm reduction-based curriculum that was available in the nation, and it's called Safety First. I think I remember Uh, that. Yeah, that's really neat. Yeah. And uh, what's really great is Donald contacted us and said, hey, can you meet with some other grantees? They're interested in this curriculum and they're not sure how to implement it. And so we were able to do that. And now that organization is implementing the safety first curriculum as well. It's really great, though, because like I said, it's not based off of fear tactics. It's really just, hey, kids, you're all going to be in these situations and here's what you should be doing. And if you're if you decide that you're going to take drugs, 
here's what you need to be aware of. And we really inform the kids about supporting each other and ensuring that if one of their friends is passed out at a party, don't just ignore it. We let them know that they can contact our community health workers any time of the day if it's an emergency to ask for help. We let them know that EMS is not scary, that they're really there to help you. Mm -hmm. So it's been wonderful. And what we have really recognized is over 75% of the students originally told us that their parents and teachers were never or seldom talking to them about substance use and about addiction. And that was shocking to us because I remember I grew up in the Nancy Reagan era of the DARE yeah. programs and mm-hmm. scaring the life out of children. So they yeah. never did. Very effective. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it was interesting to me. That was the case that our students were saying that. And many of our students had, it was somewhere around 20% of the students in high school had already taken some form of a pill that wasn't prescribed to them. Really shocking and sad to us because these kids we watch grow up. It's a small community, but it also empowered us to take more action, which um, we're proud to do. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's so many examples of you being innovative, proactive, and building off that, you wrote about it uh, a little in the featured grantee write-up when you were discussing like different data collection components, but what's the community snapshot? Oh, we love the community snapshots. We're all required to complete those PIMS reports that are very challenging actually to do when you, I can't imagine having a consortium of more than four or five partners. I think that's what we have. We have off the top of my head, I think we have five five consortium members on our core grant that we collect data from. And that's why we won't ever sign up with more than five five groups because the Mm -hmm. data collection for the PIMS is difficult. You have to teach other organizations what needs to be collected. Sometimes they don't have the built-in capacity to do so yet. So then you have to walk with them to help develop the templates in their EHR systems. And so it's a real work in progress. But what we did over time was take the data from the PIMS reports and compile it into what we call a community snapshot. And it basically turn what we do is we turn the data from the PIMS report into understandable, relatable data, and we give it to the community and our partners in a one-page sheet that just shows from a comparison of prior data to current data and how we as a collaborative have really impacted the community. And it also gives us the opportunity to say, hey, here's what we're not doing good and what we really need to focus on in the coming months. And we've really enjoyed being able to do that. It's a pretty little one pager, has graphics, makes it easy to read, and also informs the community about what agencies are doing to work together and what problems we're trying to fight against. Yeah, I'm I'm glad you all linked to it in the write-up. I'm just skimming through it now. I can see all the different charts and graphs and everything. And it's a good layout and aesthetically pleasing. Yeah. Let me just skim through. Yeah. And it's not too, we try to give the data points that people will relevant. easily understand. Yeah. It's relevant. Exactly. True. Yeah. Uh, last time, back in February, you, there was there were plans and I think discussions of the mobile clinic. Is there a mobile health clinic update? I'd love to give one really exciting news. We started connecting with our representatives 
a lot more in the last six months, just helping them understand what we're doing, getting them up to speed so that they can also advocate for the project. So we were recently selected as one of 15 projects um, by Congressman Jared Huffman. Um, He does this annual community projects initiative where only 15 projects in the whole state are selected. And ours was one of them for funding. Yeah. Thank you. So, yeah, um, we don't have the money yet. Um, It does have to be approved by the House of Appropriations because it's a line item in the federal budget. So we're just waiting on the response from that. But even just being selected as one of the projects is really an honor. We also connected with Assemblymember Jim Wood, who represents our district. He's also the lead in the state on the health care committee. So that's helpful to have our representative as the committee lead on that. And he was able to get as a line item in his state budget $350,000 for our project. Wow. So we're still moving forward. We we still have funding to to get, shockingly yeah. enough, but yeah. to launch a mobile health clinic uh, is over a million dollars because the cost of the vehicle and the cost of the medical records installation is really absorbent. We right now, are, our vehicles in production is actually being delivered to us on September 14th. So we're going to have a little celebration on that day as it's delivered. Yeah. And we are working in collaboration with South Coast Fire Department, who's letting us pop up a carport on their property to store the vehicle permanently. Um, Our agreement is that in in the case of an emergency with emergency preparedness and response that our mobile clinic can be used by the emergency services, which was another outside of the mobile health clinic, another key move toward our community being resilient during disasters because when there's a disaster here, FEMA's not coming. And we just learned that in the in January when we had what was called a cyclone bomb storm system hit our community with 100, 100 plus mile an hour winds tearing down trees. There were thousands of trees that went down. We live in the middle of the redwoods And there's also a lot of pine trees. And so that storm system really hit us. And we learned we have to be more resilient than we ever knew we had to be before. So it's exciting to have that vehicle as a a component of the emergency response plan. But outside of that, we've been looking at development of policies and procedures. We're well underway with that. We have six different committees that are working on different aspects of the mobile clinic from the vehicle um, delivery day and um, that celebration. We have a marketing committee. We have operations committee, um, which is also working on workforce um, training and things like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, What do we want our training to look like? What do we want the culture of this care delivery to look like? Uh, We will be providing primary care. The mobile clinic is equipped with telemedicine monitors, so we can provide that as well. One of the things that's difficult for our community members is that they have to travel two, sometimes six hours to specialty care. Oh, wow. And um, a lot of times it's just for those 15 to 20 minute check-in appointments. And so we know that with specialty care, there are appointments that are required to be in person. They're going to take an hour because there's some kind of lab or, or procedure that needs to be done. But what we're trying to do with the mobile clinic is if somebody has six appointments, specialty care out of the area, maybe we can do four of them on the mobile clinic Mm -hmm. via telemedicine to eliminate some of that travel. And 
really our goal with a mobile clinic is to reach the individuals who are underserved. Mm-hmm. All of the people are all of our core services are in Gualala. That's the center of the service area. But there's 30 miles north and 30 miles south of us. And so the people on the outer ends of that service area have to drive a minimum of an hour in any direction, even to get to Gualala. And so we're going to be bringing that mobile clinic to them directly. We'll be parking the south end and the north end one day a week to start. Uh, We'll operate from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. because we want to make sure if we're going to try to make this equitable and accessible, it needs to be outside of business hours so people can Mm. get health care. So yeah, we're planning to launch in 2024. It's always dependent on other people's timelines with licensing and and then recruitment and things like that. But we plan to contract with Medicare, Medi-Cal, Blue Shield, all the main insurance players, and then also have sliding scale and free visits for people who are uninsured and cannot be insured affordably. Yeah, well, it's going to be really impactful. So I'm excited for you. I'll be thinking of you from here on September 14th and look forward to hearing how it goes uh, in 2024. So just as we wrap up, um, since I've taken a good bit of your time already, could you just finally talk a bit about the Overcoming Addiction campaign? Because I know that's gotten a lot of traction. And I remember just seeing a little you know, snapshot that you submitted with the different kind of squares put into one bigger square and it's it, it looks so good and I'm sure it's had good impact too. So maybe you could just wrap us up by talking a little bit about that, how it came to be and where it's gone since its creation. Yeah. Um at a little while ago I mentioned how stigmatized addiction is in our community or was in our community. We yeah. had that campaign has really changed the environment for everybody. Yes. When we recognize through that needs assessment how stigmatized addiction is in our community, we realized we have to do something together with our partners. So we started working with public health because we know inland in the Ukiah area, they have a big reach in the community. They also had access to some other like human resources, people in the community who could really help promote the campaign. We started on our journey in the first year we did mainly one video. It was a four-minute video that really gave a whole county-wide view of addiction. And we included people who are in recovery in that campaign and their stories. And then it really got traction. We had it advertising across the county. Um, Our whole county is considered rural. So we, and has high rates of addiction, we actually have the highest uh, rate of overdose in the whole state. So we realized that we needed to really work together and and get those things taken care of when it came to addiction in all of the communities. We used our public health professionals, community members experiencing addiction, community members in recovery, and did a series of videos and, and print campaigns that went on buses, that went into newspapers, that went on social media. And so in doing that, we were able to blanket the the whole county and started getting good feedback from people saying how inspirational it was for them. We actually started getting calls from people requesting to navigate into treatment. 
And in the first year after that campaign was launched, our little community sent 14 community members into treatment successfully. And three, three, four years into this campaign, I think we're our third year into the campaign, all of those individuals who originally reached out are still in recovery. Oh, that's so, so impressive. What if it? Yeah. Does? Yeah. Yeah. And it's really just now our medical providers are open to doing treatment. They aren't stigmatizing it as much. We actually got one of the local FQHC providers on the campaign with us. And her video and perspective is available. And she's the one who does the treatment. So she it was really important for us to include her. But yeah, beautiful campaign. It took a lot of work a year worth of production going on behind the scenes before mm-hmm. we could launch it. And then the first year was so successful that we said, let's do a second year. We added more people, more videos, more mm-hmm. print ads. And again, we saw a lot of success, countywide spread of different change in attitude about addiction. Yeah. We're not done though. They're still fighting to be done on that front. Yes. Oh, always. Yeah. Yeah. But even just closing the gap as much as you all have is impressive so yeah i feel like those the words i'm left after hearing everything you all are doing is both like impressive impactful innovative yeah i really appreciate you making the time to join today and it's doubly impressive to talk about it while you're moving through the home with the laptop and all so yeah i gotta run from children yes yes <laughs> no, I, under, I understand yeah once again i appreciate you joining for folks that tuned in thanks for listening and we'll see you next time All right. Thank you. Have a great day.